Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. My guest today is William Davis, co-director of the Political Economy Research Centre at Goldsmiths, University of London, and author of books including Nervous States, Democracy and the Decline of Reason. He's also one of the sharpest commentators on post-2016 politics, and his new book, This Is Not Normal, collects some of the columns he's written for The Guardian, The London Review of Books and other places. It makes for a fascinating as-it-happened account of the last four turbulent years and raises many questions about what happens next. Hi, Will. Thanks for joining me. Not at all. It's great to be here. It must be tempting uh, to sort of surgically remove uh, a, a bad takes from an anthology <laughs> like this, perhaps, you know, predicting a, a glorious reign for Theresa May. Um, <laughs> are these columns all sort of in, in exactly their original form or, or have they been revised at all? No, I mean, you, you, you pick out one of the errors, that, that what turned out to be an error, which was a piece I wrote in the London Review of Books in the autumn of 2016, when Theresa May was riding very high in the polls. Uh, she'd given her speech about uh, citizens of nowhere, for which it became famous for that line. And then, of course, she got hubristic by the following spring and called a, a general election, which was disastrous for her. Um, so that was a... Uh, anyway, so in that piece, I sort of, you know, analysed that conference speech as if this was the kind of birth of a new hegemony to rival Thatcher's, and that was extremely short-sighted, in, as it turned out to be. But the others are, are generally... No, I, I mean, I've, I've made a few edits here and there, but I, I, it's, it's pretty much... Uh, raw as it as it was written. And which events since the EU referendum, um, particularly apart from the 2017 election, which I think surprised everyone, um, which other events sort of really took you by surprise and maybe sort of challenged your assumptions, if not if not overturning them, at least tweaking them? Well, of course, that was a. That, I mean, I don't think anyone quite saw the the Corbyn surge happen in the way that it did in the spring summer of, of twenty seventeen. A lot of the pieces, if I'm being honest, a lot of the pieces are, are, are sort of discussing events as they arise. And so, there's a piece about Corbyn and Corbynism from the summer of twenty seventeen, which tries to understand in a kind of more structural, longer term sense, why that kind of political development occurred. But I couldn't claim to have foreseen it. Um, I don't think many people could really honestly claim that, uh, certainly going back several weeks earlier. I mean, I think it looked in the summer of 2019 as if Johnson was on a path leading towards no deal, uh, as he may be again. But uh, And I think there are some pieces from the summer of 2019 about why No Deal uh, appeals to a certain mentality, a certain type of voter. There were a lot of people who voted for Johnson to become leader of the Conservative Party, members of the Conservative Party, who I, I describe, discuss a little bit in, in, in some pieces from the summer of 2019, who, you know, are sort of really kind of red-blooded Brexiteers who favour the, the strongest Brexit, regardless of the economic consequences. And as I discuss in one of the pieces called the England's Rontier Alliance, that some of these people are rather kind of protected to, to some extent from the full consequences of a, of a of a very strong Brexit, and of course Johnson then surprised many people in the in the autumn of of twenty nineteen by pulling a, a deal out of the bag, which seemed to kind of throw Northern Ireland under the bus, although he denied that, um, and it, it kind of took him through the election without looking like a kind of kamikaze pilot. Um, and, and so I didn't see that coming either. There were analysts out there, there were people out there who said, "No, look, you don't don't fall for this. Uh, he wants an election. He wants a deal. He just wants power. He doesn't really have a strong view about how he gets it." Uh, and and I may have probably there's a tendency to kind of overestimate the, the sort of extremity and the kind of ideological purity of, of some of these characters. What uh, a lot of the sort of discourse in the States at the moment is about, um, you know, the next Trump and, and what happens if there's somebody who's sort of slicker and more competent but can tap into some of that same energy. 
which I'm so, is something I'm, I'm sort of quite sort of skeptical about, whether you can have a, a slicker and more competent Trump and that it's not just in Britain and America, but populists generally, a Bolsonaro isn't terribly good at, at governing. Then again, you've got sort of, you know, uh, Poland and Hungary, the kind of the authoritarians seem to be rather efficient. Do you feel that, do you worry, I suppose, that this phase of populism, where you have a lot of people who just sort of, you know, campaign very well and then sort of fuck it up in office, will mm. be sort of replaced by by a sort of smarter generation? Uh, yeah, I, I'm also a little bit sceptical of that Trump analysis that I've seen going around. I mean, I think certainly there will be more um, that I think American expect some more dangerous forces or, or certainly some more dangerous visions than than Trump's. I mean, Trump is not really someone who had much of a vision. I mean, I believe he's a racist and I believe he's a narcissist. But at the same time, he didn't really have policies as such. I mean, people point to, to Stephen Miller's immigration policy, which of course was absolutely brutal. Uh, and Trump was quite happy to go along with it. But he's not someone who sort of really has a vision of how society should be. And I think that's the perhaps the difference between him and someone like Viktor Orban, who clearly does have uh, particular beliefs about uh, about the about nationhood, about family, uh, about the, the status of universities in society. And Trump sort of kind of simply uses these sorts of things in order to advance his own ego and his own profile. And I think that's a little bit different. And so I think that in a way, as you say, a competent Trump doesn't make a lot of sense because Trump is a sort of, you know, he's a kind of t- piece of TV content as much as anything. That's kind of what he wants to be is, a, is an eye-catching entertainer. And, and, and you can't understand how he got where he, he did other than uh, via the power of celebrity as much as anything else, rather than via more conventional political means. But of course, I mean, I think were a Republican to run, it wouldn't be com- competence implies something governmental that is quite administrative. And there was the famous Steve Bannon line about trying to kind of deconstruct the administrative state as being part of what Trumpism was about. Uh, I think you can, fascism involves ruling not through administration so much as ruling via police and ruling via violence. Uh, and I think the question is, you know, if if, if, a, if a, a Republican candidate was to, that's uh, not to say the fascism doesn't harness administration as all sorts of people like Zygmunt Bauman and others have talked about the, the bureaucracy of, of, of national socialism and, and so on. But nevertheless, it, it, it must be, it foregrounds violence and it foregrounds police. And I think that if a Republican candidate was to stand in 2024, who basically said that they were going to, you know, close down gender studies departments, they were going to be much tougher on the border than even Trump had been, you know, they could have a set of policies that, that yes, they, I mean, I don't think competent would be the word for them. I think that they would be authoritarian and violent, um, and they would be uh, exercising executive power through sheer force rather than through something kind of administrative. Now, I mean, I, I think that's, shouldn't rule that out, but it's not about having a kind of Trump who can do policy. It's about having a more full-throated um, fascist who actually has a more coherent set of beliefs than I think Trump mm. has. And obviously it's easy to decry populism, um, but obviously you have to look at the failures that sort of allowed it to, to spring up in such a big way. And one of the themes of your book and sort of your previous work is neoliberalism, which is a word that seems to you know, sometimes cause a lot of confusion or a lot of sort of competing analysis. And certainly there's different sort of aspects of it and that when people are writing about it some people are strictly about the economics and some people yeah. I mean very briefly how would you in, in your work how do you define it what's the what's the bit that interests you most and you think is yeah. most culpable for where we are well uh, and I understand that it's a term some people don't like they think it's just a kind of dismissal of of of, of 
um, liberalism or of capitalism or, or something. Uh, I mean, there is, and I'm not going to go into all the details, but there is actually a kind of now quite a rich history of the development of a particular set of ideas and, and principles and policy tools that, that emerged really from quite early on, from going back to the 1920s. And, and there's all sorts of work by p- people like um, Quint Slobodian and, and Philip Morawski and Wendy Brown and Melinda Cooper and all of that kind of uh, stuff, if people are interested in it. I mean, I think what, what I'm concerned by is the way I distinguish liberalism from, from neoliberalism and, and the, the reasons why the book is a, is a, is a, is a cautious defence of liberalism in, in certain respects and a critique of neoliberalism is that liberalism rests on a separation of the space of politics from the space of economics. And this is something that the left has, has criticised a lot over, over time, including Karl Marx and Karl Polanyi and people like that, because it argues that actually, you know, unless you've got freedom in the economic sphere, what use is the freedom in the political sphere? And, and that's, there's lots to be said for that critique. But neoliberalism does something, in my view, worse, which is to try and collapse the political sphere into the economic sphere, to kind of colonise the space of politics, democracy and the constitution and ultimately potentially even the rule of law by subjecting it to the logic of, of the market, the logic of efficiency, the logic of competitiveness and so on. In a way, I think that uh, what this does is it, it partly strips away the, the, the significance of democracy, that the, the realm of democracy ceases to be where the kind of key decisions are made, that decisions get handed over to financial markets, to uh, private sector outsourcing agencies, to a sort of managerial culture that gets kind of injected into the public sector such that it kind of loses what differentiates it from the private sector. And you can see in the 1990s, there was a sort of gradual sort of withdrawal from democracy by many people. I mean, if you read the political scientist Peter Mayer, he, he talks about the kind of, you know, falling of participation rates across Europe over the 90s. And I mean, it's worth remembering that New Labour oversaw the, the one of the sharpest uh, declines in participation in elections uh, at the same time as trade unions had lost so much power under Thatcher and, and membership levels under Thatcher. So you had this kind of gradual sort of withdrawal from spaces of political voice uh, under neoliberalism as economic evaluations and, and, and decision making uh, gains the upper hand. Hand. And I think that the, the, the longer term effect of that, which is what I suppose most relevant to my book, This Is Not Normal, is that effectively the, the, the space of politics and the space of political argument and democracy starts to seem like a bit of a, a kind of a sham, a bit of a kind of front, really, where behind of which uh, the, the serious activity is going on, the more kind of technocratic activity, the, the mm. judgments of financial markets and so on. And this turns politics into a, into a branch of, 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 of sort of uh, into a spectacle, into a kind of type of celebrity culture. Well, you talk about different kinds of lie, um, and there's a bit where you're talking about this sort of, this period of scandals, including sort of MPs' expenses, the WikiLeaks revelations, phone hacking, Jimmy Savile, uh, etc. And you sort of argue that concealment is more damaging than just sort of outright fabrication. So does, mm-hmm. does that mean that there is an incentive um, particularly for anyone who's observed Trump, to just lie shamelessly because people sort of instinctively think that if there's there's no cover-up, there's there's no crime. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, uh, I mean, in that particular essay, I I, I, I draw on a distinction that's, that is made by a, an academic a sociological paper, whose authors I can't, I'm afraid, currently remember, but it's in the book, um, between um, lies which... Um, the sort of lies that Hillary Clinton uh, might be found to be telling, which appear to be to be, as you say, sort of 
slightly concealing something or I mean this was certainly the the, the suspicion that people had in 2016 of Hillary Clinton was that she was kind of you know a bit shifty like like Bill Clinton and and, and, and like a certain aspect of the establishment that didn't quite talk to you straight uh, versus lies that everybody can see through and are kind of aren't really kind of meant to be sort of literally true which 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 Donald Trump would tell and what this article what this essay um shows through studying um uh, through a sociological study is that there's almost a sort of truth in the way Donald Trump kind of just sort of blows the lid on everything by just sort of, you know, his lies are so flagrant that on some level they have a kind of a, a, an honesty about them. They, 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 they are a sort of, a sort of declaration that um, that Washington DC and the Beltway culture is 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 a space of bullshitters, and and there's a kind of you know there's a sort of there's a, almost a relief in the fact that here is someone that um, is 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 not is is not sort of purporting to be kind of pre- presenting you with a set of facts. Uh, I mean, I think as far as those kind of exposés are concerned, I mean, the other aspect of of, the, of my thesis, I suppose, is that in addition to neoliberalism, which kind of kind of hands power to sort of something which is sort of behind the scenes, which is the financial markets and the auditors and the 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 the, 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 the managers and the technocrats. At the same time, this, I think what what was laid upon that from 2005 onwards, round about 2005, with the with the birth of giant platforms and so on, is this sense that the the, the truth really lies in the kind of email trails and the data and the the the, the archives which are being left behind constantly via uh, digital media and, and traces of behavior. And what's interesting about those scandals you, you just mentioned, including like the MPs expenses scandals and, and, and WikiLeaks and, and these sorts of things, is that they, that they were these kind of giant sort of eruptions of, of truth from, from behind the kind of, from behind the, from behind the, 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 um, the veneer of of what public life purported to be, uh, or the Panama Papers, you know. Also, you know, David Cameron was 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 um, in, was was um, named in the Panama Papers, um, and I think that this is a sort of, in some ways, reveals something about our kind of the how truth functions in today's world, which is that we sort of, you know, we no longer think of truth as something that belongs to. The public sphere, in the way that is the case when you talk about things which are on the public record, whether that be Hansard or or or, or the paper of record or the Office for National Statistics kind of quarterly reports or whatever it might be, but instead, truth is something which is currently lurking in a in a in a kind of bank or an archive somewhere, uh, and it's going to take an Edward Snowden or a Chelsea Manning or some sort of figure like that to sort of lance it and then it will all come gushing out like a sort of you know a dam breaking uh, and i think that's the, the the difficulty of of living in a in a world with, of this these kind of media technologies one of the features of this era of reactionary populism um that you describe is that you sort of don't actually need to promise a brighter future and you just have to reject the status quo and make some the sort of right noises about nostalgia for this unspecified uh glory days and I often sort of think now about the sort of politics that I grew up with and the, the things that I thought were realities of politics. So, for example, you know, George Bush Sr. said, no, read my lips, no new taxes. Then there were new taxes and he was punished for that. And I thought, oh, okay, you make a promise, you break a promise. There are consequences, as indeed obviously happened to the Lib Dems over uh, tuition fees. But, I mean, is this is, is this as a model of populism, basically you don't make many promises, so you can't be held into account for breaking, tell to account for breaking mm. them. Essentially, it's sort of, it's just sort of vibe-based politics. 
the great exception to that, at least on superficially, is Boris Johnson because he spent his whole time making promises. I mean, um, you know, he's he, he's made prom- he's promised to build bridges to pretty much every island and every across every river and <laughs> tunnels, and so it's always been infrastructure. I think there's some some elderly schoolmaster from Eton probably is responsible for saying back in the 1970s, oh, that you know, great leaders build bridges or something, and somehow Johnson sort of decided this was the only thing he was able to offer. When Johnson makes these promises, I mean, I think that. Again, it's a bit like Trump's lies. I mean, Trump Trump was a liar or is a liar in relation to to the past, much as anything else. He says that you know that, that the economy has done this and that he has done this and so on. And uh, Johnson is slightly smarter because he goes around talking about the future the whole time and in a kind of optimistic, cheerful way. Uh, and if you dismiss it as as not being credible, then you treat you sound like a naysayer, and that's sort of quite a quite a clever politics. But I think what's what's true of both is that they are what I would characterize as real-time politicians in the sense that they are very good at holding attention while they are on the stage and then distracting attention from something else and then sending people's attention off in some other direction and they come back on the stage again. And this is, um, I mean, there's an essay in the in the book um, about the format or the template of this kind of public sphere is that of the stand-up comedy club where people take to the stage and they say, oh, you know, funny thing happened to me on the way here and da 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 and everyone laughs. And people don't really say, well, did that thing actually happen on the way here? <laughs> Uh, you know that would be kind of missing the point in some way and i mean i mean a friend of mine's a stand-up comedian and and he sort of talked me through the sort of years it takes to cultivate a version of yourself which is undoubtedly you but it's a you that you take onto the stage Uh, and it's not kind of false because it's definitely you but at the same time it's not really you either and i think that's what boris is when you talk about this character called Boris he's someone who can who has been cultivated over over a long period of time who's got the gestures he's got the hair he's got the kind of thing and it, and it kind of gets him out of every situation and so yes it's true that that, that he's not really a policy-based politician but he he, he certainly uses promises quite cannily mm. in order to divert attention and to and to cultivate uh, optimism it's worked for well he's only been prime minister for less than a year and I think already some of his backbenchers have had enough of it and finally, I mean, your book only came out a few weeks ago, but already we've seen a couple of uh, sort of major developments. We've seen Trump lose the election, although he hasn't sort of accepted it yet. And we've seen Dominic Cummings ousted from Downing Street. And obviously one is a democratic rejection and one is just um, the boss firing you because you, you got out of order. But I mean, I don't think anybody really, uh, except the kind of the, the straw men on Twitter, um, think that we can just sort of get back to the technocratic status quo and, and live in an eternal Olympics opening ceremony. <laughs> but do you think that Trump's defeat and Cummings' departure from Downing Street signal the end of sort of one phase of this, a possible reversal, a possible, you know, a chance for sort of liberalism to reestablish itself? How much do those things matter? Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously, and COVID changes so much as well, because COVID has I mean, I don't think it's it's sort of resuscitating the Keynesian welfare state by a long way. And I think that we, you know, the consequences of, of COVID, we, we just don't know what the aftermath, to the extent that it'll be an aftermath, but the sort of, you know, the next five, 10 years is going to look like. At the same time, it has at least demonstrated that, that the state continues to, or certainly the states in, in, in the UK, I think the, the, the sort of travesty of, of Trump obviously is that that Trump completely turned his back on, on the American people. But I think that, you know, it's demonstrated that, that states can and do take responsibility for the welfare 
of their populations. That might sound like a kind of, you know, between 1945 and, and, and sort of the early 20, 21st century, that would have seemed like a sort of almost like an obvious thing to say. But they do take a sort of bare minimum of responsibility for their populations in a way that are sort of in the kind of libertarian fantasies of the right. Uh, and I think Cummings has sometimes entertained some of this, that, that that wouldn't be the case, you know, that you would sort of have a much more kind of dynamic sort of disruptive model in which uh, I'm not I'm not someone who believes Cummings is some sort of out-and-out evil social Darwinist, but nevertheless, he's clearly quite interested in in, in sort of some of the more outlandish uh, ideas about how human progress happens. Um, so I think that um, I don't think it'll be a, a reversal. You know, I think that the the, the case for for guaranteeing levels of of security has certainly increased in recent years. Um, and of course, there are still leaders out there who's with such as Merkel still who has um, whose whose power I think is sort of shows no sign of being dimmed and has, has has risen as a result of the the pandemic further then there's the whole question of 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 china in the global economy which is a whole other sort of uh, much more sort of sizable issue that i'm not really qualified to talk about but that has major consequences for how things like climate change and so on are, are, are sort of represented and discussed and handled the question of broadly speaking social security has has returned with a vengeance um and i think will not go away but of course there is there are different ways of answering that question and there are some which involve a version of mayism i suppose which may not go away like when I, theresa may's version of a sort of you know um what i talk about in that in that article maybe maybe to, maybe may will go but mayism will will return <laughs> in some guys which is a sort of a a competent kind of what i call in in the piece in in the book a, a, the protective state of of a kind of home office mentality which continues to reassure people that it is going to enforce very tough borders but which you know potentially involves higher levels of social spending. Obviously, social spending is currently through the roof and the, the fiscal situation is nothing like uh, anything that would be recognised as, as neoliberal. So things have changed dramatically, heavily to do with the pandemic. And, you know, maybe Johnson will be gone this time next year and I don't know who will, will have replaced him. Obviously, Gove will, will want to be... What, Gove will have his eye on it. And, you know, they, we could see aspects of a kind of pre-2016 world return, but combined with 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 something which is unprecedented. So you think we you think we might end up with somewhere somewhere more normal or just I mean would it be like a would it be a sort of completely new normal or do you think that maybe in sort of I don't know like a a decade's time we might be looking at something which which does sort of resemble the pre twenty sixteen. I don't think it will. I mean, it, I mean, it will resemble it in the sense that you know, I mean, government departments and and policy and the power of 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 some kind of legacy media institutions will still be there in in a decade's time. Although I think when it comes to some of those legacy media institutions, I think the sort of tide is is gradually going out on them actually, and that's partly why they are becoming more sort of. Um, crazy a lot of the time <laughs> i don't think we have an alternative i mean the the, the the cummings vision which i don't think even got close to beginning to experiment is of a sort of startup state which kind of operates in a kind of rather unruly fashion like a you know um and and and, and, and it's sort of constantly sort of running experiments and uh, uh gauging in sort of extremely high high risk innovation strategies that potentially pay very high rewards that's the sort of you know the kind of silicon valley model is you sort of try things out and most of them fail and one or two of them create huge results i mean i i think that 
it may be that somebody else comes along and, and does that. But I think, you know, ultimately coming, taking on the civil services, which is the civil service is, is several centuries old, or it's sort of 150 years old in its current form. And it's, it's not a very, it's not, it's, it's easier said than done. And mm. um, many people have come out of Cummings's job feeling like failures in the past uh, and, have, and have tried for a lot longer than, than he did. I think the aspects will clearly still be in place. But I think that perhaps our sort of what you might call our affective state, our, our our emotional state, our sense of a of a of a, of a politics that operates uh, in an unruly and and rapid fashion. A lot of that, a lot of the way we kind of encounter the the public world is partly thanks to the way in which it's mediated through uh, a set of technologies that are clearly um, going to not going to go anywhere. And that's not I'm not sort of blaming social media as such. I'm just saying that our sort of we this this kind of real time existence that we now uh, live and the sense that politics is becoming kind of overwhelming and you know <laughs> why is there so much of it why is the news so sort of kind of exhausting and relentless i don't think that's going to go away um that's not because i think that there will be constant trumps and constant coronaviruses but i think that it's it's partly because of the technologies that are in place that have kind of broken down a sort of rhythmical or punctual form of social existence in which you kind of get a daily update on things or a quarterly update on things and has turned more towards a kind of constant stream of of images and videos and data and and jokes and that sort of thing so no relief from the news i'm afraid not. <laughs> thanks for talking to me william davis it's been a pleasure thanks this is not normal the collapse of liberal britain is published by verso Thanks for listening. The Daily comes out every weekday except Tuesday when we have the full panel show. Take care and see you soon. The Bunker Daily was presented by Dorian Linsky. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. And audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>